Welcome to the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, bringing biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. I'm your host, Gwen DeSelm, and it is my pleasure to bring you this special Good Friday episode of the Word for Everyday Disciples. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm, founding senior pastor of Fellowship Missionary Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he served for nearly 35 years. Dave is now the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as a weekly blog, devotionals, individual and group coaching, speaking, and more. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. The words of the old hymn seem somehow appropriate today. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. In the message you're about to hear, Dave does just that. He leads us to the foot of the cross and calls us to pause there to remember, to reflect, and to rejoice. There's a term that military analysts use known as the fog of war. Perhaps you've heard of it. In the fog of war, the smoke, typically from the cannons, from the, from the rifles, so fill the battlefield that disorientation is common. Friend and foe often look alike. One really wonders where the front lines are and what's going on. However, the fog of war also has to do with the confusion and the fear and the uncertainty that accompanies battle. In the fog of war, it's very difficult to grasp what's really happening. One of the classic examples of this took place 200 years ago. The year was 1815. The country was Great Britain. She was at war with France. Napoleon Bonaparte had rolled across the continent with his French armies. The British were desperately trying to stop him. Everyone was expecting a decisive battle, and one came that spring. Outside the small Belgian town known as Waterloo, battle lines were drawn up. On a muddy field, nearly 200,000 troops faced each other. The French on one side, the British and their Prussian allies on the other side. Napoleon's goal was simple, to drive Britain's army into the sea, and in so doing, to stake his claim as emperor over all Europe. The British had their own leader, a capable one. His name was the Duke of Wellington. His orders were quite simple, stop Napoleon at all costs. On April 15th, the guns began to open up. The cannons boomed. Sabers clashed, drums beat, muskets fired, horses charged, and men began to die. The battle lasted throughout the day, and the fog of war began to cover the battlefield. Unfortunately for the British, they began to take huge losses. Near the end of the battle, Wellington sent a message back to England This was a day before telegraph or telephone or radio. The only way to get the message back, therefore, was through a line of ships across the English Channel. Lights were flashed, 
flags were waved, and from ship to ship, the message would get back to England as to what had happened. Unfortunately, that day, not only was there thick smoke on the battlefield, but a deep fog had rolled in across the channel. As such, the message that was understood was this, Wellington defeated. When word reached London, men cursed and women wept. Financial collapse was threatened. The London Board of Trade actually was shut down. Church bells tolled, calling the country to a time of mourning. It appeared everything had been lost. The thing is, that wasn't what happened at all. Late in the day, against all odds, after having marched all night, the Prussian Fourth Corps showed up on the battlefield. Striking Napoleon's troops in the flank, his men already exhausted, the Prussians pushed them off, Wellington's men turned around, and the result was a glorious English victory. Which is why it is so difficult to understand why all the panic was. You see, when the final message was retransmitted, it didn't say Wellington defeated. The full message was, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. What was thought to have been a terrible, terrible loss ended up being a glorious victory. 2,000 years ago, there was another battle on another hill. All who watched it would have thought the message was Jesus defeated. Yet once the fog had cleared, the message was clearer. Jesus defeated sin on the cross. It is that victory that we celebrate this afternoon and is that reality that we commemorate this day. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will be back in just a moment with the rest of his message. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to subscribe and leave us a review. Then share this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to support us in this ministry, you can go to davedesalmministries.org and click on the donate button. In addition to this podcast, Dave DeSalm Ministries offers other resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as devotionals for everyday disciples. Each week, Pastor Dave delivers a new devotional filled with insight and inspiration from God's Word. Go to davedesalmministries.org and you can browse through the over 100 devotionals found there. You can also subscribe and have each new devotional sent directly to your email inbox. Now, let's get back to Dave and the conclusion of his Good Friday message. All four of the Gospel accounts describe the fog of war that took place on that hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. For our purposes today, I'd like to use the base text, Mark's account, but we'll be looking at a couple of others as well. You might want to follow along on the screens as I read it to you. 
They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. A written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. For six horrific hours, from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, Jesus hangs on the cross. He's already endured multiple trials, beatings within an inch of his life. Blood is running down his face from the crown of thorns. He's close to dead when he makes his way up Calvary's hill. But there he hangs, and there he prepares to die. One of the most horrific parts of it is the positioning of his body, Crucifixion invented by the Phoenicians and perfected by the Romans is arguably the most terrible form of execution ever in all history. His legs partially bent. He has to pull down on his hands and push up on his feet in order to fill his lungs with air. Typically, crucifixion victims died of suffocation. They simply could no longer breathe. For six hours... Jesus hangs suspended between heaven and earth. Down below, the soldiers gamble for his few possessions, a tunic, a cloak. Crowds mock him. Religious leaders congratulate themselves. At long last, this one who would so trouble them is silenced. As for Jesus' disciples, Judas has by now killed himself. Peter is hiding in shame. And all the others are cowering in fear. All appears to be lost. The dream is dead. And so is their Savior. It says at noon, the sixth hour, darkness covered the land. And this wasn't a meteorological phenomenon. It wasn't a thunderstorm. It wasn't a total eclipse. It was clearly a supernatural darkening of the sky. For, six hour, for three hours, the last three hours darkness. You ever wondered why? Why the darkness? There are some who would suggest that this was a gracious father's attempt to let his son die in the privacy of the darkness. And I suppose that might have some truth there. But could it be that the darkness is more symbolic than that? 
I think it is. I think the darkness was showing us to a certain extent that the fog had rolled in and we really didn't understand what all would be happening in those last three hours. If we go all the way back to the beginning of creation, we read some words about darkness that are familiar to you. Listen to what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Let the darkness be pierced. Let the darkness give way. Let light come. Strikingly, in John's gospel, he begins the very same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness. But the darkness has not understood it. Jesus himself alluded to this over in the third chapter. It says this in verse 18. This is the verdict. Light has come to the world, but man has loved darkness instead of the light. Friends, I would suggest to you that this is displaying something to us. The darkness that covered the earth symbolized the darkness that was mankind. But rather than simply abandoning us to the darkness of our own choosing, and we all chose it, we've all chosen it, Jesus chose to enter into the darkness. He chose to do battle with the darkness. And in the fog of war, that struggle was ultimately against the darkness. It was there where he so identified himself with us, where he so shouldered all of our sin, where he so took on all of our guilt, that he shared those strange words in the Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all eternity, God the Father turned his head from God the Son. That moment of horror cost him more than all the nails and all the beatings. Why? Because when Jesus took the sin of mankind on him in the darkness, God the Father had to avert his gaze. In that moment, Jesus took the sins of all of us on himself. The abandonment that we would have known, the averted gaze from the Father that we should have experienced, Jesus took at that time. But something else happened in the darkness that afternoon. Luke writes of it this way in chapter 23. It was about the sixth hour. There it is at noon again. And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun stopped shining. But notice what else happened. It says, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Many of you don't recognize the fact, but ever since the wilderness wanderings with a tent called the tabernacle, and even in the temple of that day, there had always been a curtain 
that separated the holy of holies from all else. It was there in the holy of holies where atonement was made for sin. Only one person could ever enter into it, the high priest, and he could only do it one day a year, the day of atonement. He would take the blood of a lamb and he put it on the horns of the altar. And he asked God to forgive the people. No one had ever seen the Holy of Holies. It symbolized by virtue of its curtain, and that curtain would have been six inches wide in Jesus' day. How man could never access God. But in the darkness, in the midst of the fog of war, between 12 and 3, an unseen hand ripped the curtain open. The message was clear. No longer need you be separated from access to God's very presence. No longer do you ever have to be afraid that you couldn't be good enough or religious enough. Rather, you could walk immediately into it. The incredible sense of Jesus' sacrifice. All of this explains Jesus' last words. Because in order to make that possible, he had to take on sin. Mark simply says, he gave a loud cry. But we read in John what that cry was. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, read those next three words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now that phrase, it is finished, is fascinating. In the Greek language, the word is tetelestai. Tetelestai has as its root teleo, which means to bring to an end, to complete, to accomplish. It signifies the fact that a particular course of action has been brought to successful conclusion. It's the word that you would use after you had successfully climbed Mount Everest to telestai. I finished it. It's the word that you would use if you'd turned in a doctoral dissertation to telestai. I finished my work. It's the word that you would use when you cross the finish line after a 10K run to telestai. I finished it. The word means more than I survived. It means I did exactly what I set out to do. The other point that Tetelestai was used in that day was in the marketplace. It was stamped on a product after it had been purchased. You would shout Tetelestai after paying the last payment in your new car. Paid in full. I've paid all that I had to pay, and I don't have to pay any more. It is finished, completed, accomplished, paid in full. Notice that Jesus did not say, I am finished. Friends, mark it well. This was not a moan of resignation. Oh, at long last, I'm finished. I'm done. I can take it no longer. No, this was a loud cry. 
with fullness of voice, notwithstanding six hours of struggle, Jesus lifted his bloody face and said, it is paid in full. I have accomplished all that I set out to accomplish on behalf of sinful mankind. The darkness will not win. The light has come. One more thing. In the form of that verb, to tetelestai, it's in the perfect tense. You say, what does that mean? It means this. The past tense would have said, this happened. The perfect tense is this. This happened, and it's still in effect to this day. The message is profound. When a person comes to grips with their need for Christ, when a person embraces Jesus by faith, when a person asks that their guilt be put on him, when a person becomes a Christian, it is finished. But it's not only that you no longer need to be haunted by the sins of your past, but it's you no longer have to be gripped by the sins of your present or fear the sins of your future. All of it is paid in full. All of it. Make no mistake, Satan continues to accuse. Satan continues to churn up the fog machine. He continues to whisper to people, the darkness is all you'll ever know. Your failures are fatal. But if we learn anything about the cross, it's this. God's presence is now opened up to us. The curtain has been torn. It is, in fact, finished. That is why this is Good Friday. Because the battle has been won. He accomplished all he tried to accomplish. And he stands in victory. He stands in victory. No fog can ever deny that. Thank you so much for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.